Okay, I have 6.30. I like to get started on time to be respectful of you all. What? Maybe not you, but everyone else. So if you all could pray with me, please. Father, I do thank you so much for the beautiful weather we've been having. Thank you so much for this congregation and this family of believers. I do pray that you will be with us this evening. I pray that your spirit would work among us, that we would learn from your word. I pray that you would give me the right words to say, and my preparation had been good. I do pray that you will help each of us to always try to glorify you in all we do and to serve you and to constantly be aware of your presence in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this is week two. You'll notice it's a bigger picture, so I finally figured out the computer, so that's always exciting. Last time it was like a poster stamp size. So this is a class called Growing Kids. I'm not growing. It's God Behaving Badly. And it's based on this book by David Lamb. So David Lamb has an undergraduate degree from Stanford, and then he got his doctorate from Oxford. He worked for InterVarsity for many years. But it's based on this. Now, not solely on this, but this is really the primary reference. Now, I am not an expert in this area, so my slides tend to have lots of words. And when I teach, I don't like this because it just shows a lack of understanding of the material, but I'm willing to confess that. But it also makes for better handouts. So if you want a copy of my slides, it's going to be really difficult to try to take notes if you do that sort of thing while I talk. But if you want to give me your email address, just come up here afterwards and give it to me. And I'll try to send you the next week's slides before class in case you'd like to look at them before I go through them. Okay? What's the big assumption? They're actually done before class. So we'll see if that happens, but we will try to do that. So today... We're talking about God being angry versus God being loving. So let's quick review why we're doing this class, review from last time. So the next slide gives most of my motivation, so I'll leave that to the next slide. But last week we talked about Marcion. Marcion was a heretic, lived in the 100s, and he was had a huge following, but he basically rejected the Old Testament. He said... There's a God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, they're not the same God. God of the Old Testament is angry, bitter, vindictive, genocidal, and God of the New Testament is love. We hear the same thing today, but it started a long, long time ago, Marcion. He was also the first person to get put together, you know, Brian, you talked about the canon. Marcion was the first person to put together a list of books and that said, okay, these are the canon. Now, his, throughout the whole Old Testament, had a little part of Luke and 10 of Paul's letters and threw out all the other letters. So, but it got people thinking, oh, we really ought to figure out which ones of these are authoritative and which ones are not. So we talked about Marcion. We also looked at how Jesus viewed the New Testament and how the New Testament authors viewed the Old Testament and how Jesus viewed the Old Testament and all the references and allusions. And when we read all scriptures God breathed, that's referring to the Old Testament. So they had a very high view of the Old Testament, and it pointed towards Jesus. And then we also discussed how a distorted view of God can lead to spiritual problems. So if I say, well, God is loving, and, that, and he is, but if that's the only thing I know about God, no one could go to hell. There's no demand on my life. If God is loving, God, I can do whatever I want. God will still love me. And God will love me, but he's also perfect, holy, and just. So we have to take God the way he has revealed himself to us. So we talked about that, and so 
we're really trying to look at Old Testament passages. We also talked about some principles of biblical interpretation and talked about it's really hard to translate something from thousands of years ago because there's no dictionary, the words, what did the words mean in that context? And I gave a lot of examples of how just English has changed. You know, if you say someone is gay, that's different than it meant 50 years ago. If we say he's a nice boy, nice used to mean stupid, ignorant, doesn't mean that anymore. So words can change. So we talked about that, and I gave a bunch of examples how English has changed. And we're talking a long, much, much, much longer ago. And how we have to understand they viewed the world differently, and this was written in a particular culture, and so we have to remember, I'm just on this slide, I'll talk about that. So one of my goals for this class is there is a lot of criticism of the Old Testament and God. So how do we respond to people who cherry-pick passages and say, how can you worship a genocidal God? Where are they getting that from? How do we respond to that? But we can't ignore problematic passages. There are some really difficult, challenging, the, it's one of the things that adds credibility for the Old Testament is it's not sugar-coated. There are some hard stories in here about bad things people did. So we need to be able to deal with problematic passages. How do we, without saying answers like this, well, God is God, he can do whatever he wants. Which is true. God is God, and he can do whatever he wants. But I would contend that's not a very satisfying answer for someone who's not a Christian. It's like, well, I don't want anything to do with him then. So, or, I know the Bible says that, but there's no way God would do that. So basically, this tends to start have a low view of Scripture. They say, well, I know the Old Testament says that, but I think the writers were confused. They did, God didn't really mean that. God didn't order them to kill children, or whatever it is. So that, to me, we just sort of start saying, well, I don't like that, so it's not from God. Yeah, that's okay, I'll keep that. And it's a sort of cherry-picking of the scriptures for ourselves. And I think that's a very low view of scriptures. So some people are very dismissive and negative view of the Old Testament. So they either ignore it, or they just discount it. And I think you're, you're losing a lot of insight into who God is and how we have a good relationship with God. And one of the things I, it wasn't on a slide, but one of the main takeaways that I learned from my Genesis class that I taught you all was that the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. So we have to recognize and remember the people who it was written to and how they viewed the world. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't principles for us, but it wasn't written to us. So we have to be careful to bring in our 21st century Western mindset when it was written in an Eastern culture thousands of years ago. Okay, so I found a few comic strips that I think illustrate the theme for today. There's this common perception that God, as revealed in the Old Testament, is anger. So what's his finger on? Smite. So it's like, okay, something happened. God is smiting people. That's the characteristic of God. God is a smiter. Um, I also like Calvin and Hobbes. So here's a Calvin. I don't know if it's perfectly appropriate for today, but I just like Calvin and Hobbes. So I thought I would share this. Then there was Calvin. Calvin was a mighty God, creates the universe with pure will. From utter nothingness comes swirling form. Life begins where once was void. But Calvin is not a kind and loving God. He's one of the old gods. He demands sacrifice. 
Yes, Calvin is a god of the underworld, and the puny inhabitants of earth displease him. The god, the great Calvin, ignores the pleas of the mercy, doomed ride with agony. And then his parents say, have you seen how absorbed Calvin is with the tinkered voice? He's creating whole worlds over there. I bet he'll be an architect. <laughs> <laughs> again, just a different perception. But again, the reason I like that, again, people think of old gods, God is angry. That's the way God is. Okay, so let's start. I always like to start the class with a discussion. And the question is, why do you think God, as revealed in the Old Testament, has a reputation for being angry? What are some examples of when he was angry? Anybody? The flood. Flood? Does it say he was angry? I don't know. It might. He certainly seems angry at that time since he killed everyone. <laughs> What's that? Again, there was, there was sin in the world and rejection and people were doing whatever they wanted. Other examples of anger? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what you do when you're not sure how to spell something. <laughs> um, and again, does it say he was angry? I mean, we know the angel destroyed the people, but I'm not sure it explicitly said God was angry at what was happening here. I'm not sure it says that. But there are a lot of places that said God was angry. God burned with anger. Any other examples? Adam and Eve. He got mad at the children of Israel, specifically when the 40 days up on the mountain, they were angry at yeah, all the, the exodus, when they're coming out, it seems like he's angry with them all the time. Okay? And we'll discuss some of that. <clears throat> Other examples of when he was angry? Taking of the promised land. What's that? The taking of the promised land. Taking of the promised land? Why do you say he was angry? Uh, well, because he basically told them to go and uh, eradicate everybody. <laughs> and we'll talk about what that word totally destroy means. Um... Because I don't think it means kill everyone all the time, okay? But you're right, there was clearly taking over the promised land. But I also am not sure it said he was angry at the people when he did that. It says they were being judged. But I'm, so I think a lot of the, these incidents are, incidents are true, and we say God was angry at the time, but the Bible doesn't explicitly say they were angry in some of these. Again, I don't have them all memorized. Yeah, Fred. Well, all through the various kings, there's discussion of how he was angry with what they did or didn't do. Okay. One more. And he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. Okay, Adam and Eve. Um, and again, I'm not sure. I think he was more disappointed. I'm not sure some of these say he was angry. Okay. Um, and again, I don't think it's a re unreasonable jump to infer that. But there are places where it specifically says he burned with anger. And those are the ones we're going to look at this evening. Not all of them, but we're going to look at some of them. And it turns out that in the Old Testament, God is described as being angry about 80 times. Okay, so there are about 80 times God is described as being angry. Okay, so let's look at something no one mentioned, but it's one where it clearly says God burned with anger. And that is the story of Uzzah and the ark. And so if someone could read this verse for me, volunteer, just as it is up here. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, 
and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Okay, so this was basically the ark was captured. Israel went back, got it back. And Rachel, could you read this one for me? <laughs> David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Allah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guard, guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio, I don't know how to pronounce his name, was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. Okay, so he touches the ark and he's struck dead. So the natural question is, how do you respond to someone that says, you know, surely, maybe he wasn't supposed to touch it, but surely that does not deserve a death sentence. He was trying to keep it from hitting the ground. It seems like he's showing respect for the ark. Why? What's, how do you respond to that? And we'll talk about various reasons, but and many of them you probably know. The pot's hot. Use a pot over. Okay. You go touch the pot. You don't listen to me. You're going to get burned. Okay. There's a consequence of disobedience, or there were, there were poles there for period. Okay. Great. What else? How would you respond to someone say that crime doesn't quite fit the punishment? I don't think. <clears throat> Well, because they were using a cart, which they weren't supposed to do. Okay. They were people did it, so they how did they move it in the cart? So it wasn't like he was the only one disobeyed. So it seemed odd. Okay. We'll talk about that. Right. Did they use the poles to put it on the cart? Yeah, we we're not told. <laughs> it's just a blatant disrespect for his holiness. Okay. Is the just of why he's very upset because he is not being respected. They're disobeying exactly what he said to do, and he then crudely crossed the cross the threshold of that. Okay, this is what happened. And I think we've mentioned the three primary reasons. First, it was disobedience; they weren't supposed to touch the ark. It showed a lack of respect for God. This was the seat of God. This was a representation of God. They were carrying it in a cart when they were told not to carry a cart. It had rings on the side. So those are the primary reasons. So let's look at. Because it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Maybe so, and maybe he was they, being really patient. It's like, okay, okay, okay. But... And here's a, here's a strong lesson. So again, we've already talked about this. Why was God so angry? Because they were being disobedient. They were not showing respect. So let's look at this in sort of more detail, the passages that sort of support these explanations. So I think there are primarily three reasons. One is they were transporting the art incorrectly. They were not obeying God. Number two, the decision to transport the ark on a cart was not only disobedient, but it was also insulting. And then Israel's lack of respect towards the ark was symptomatic of a lack of concern for the relationship with God, because it's called the Ark of the Covenant. So there's a lack of concern 
for that relationship. So let's look at each one of these again. And I ask you to read, and I've already confessed this before, I struggle reading long passages since I had a stroke about eight years ago. So that's why I ask you all to do that for me. So can I have someone read this, please? Volunteer. Yes. Have them make an arc of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make folds of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the arc to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this arc. They are not to be removed. Okay. So they are, someone already mentioned this. It was clearly supposed to be carried with poles. They had these rings on the side. Let's read another one. Uh, okay, you said you were going to read. After Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy furnishing and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kohathites to come and do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. Okay, so they're told to carry it, and if they touch it, they'll die. One last one, volunteer. He gave two carts and four oxen to the Gersonites as their work required, and he gave four carts and eight oxen to the Merorites as their work required. They were all under the direction of Ithmar, son of Aaron, the priest. But Moses did not give any to the Koshites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. Okay, so there are multiple places that they're told they are to carry the ark. And it's clear that they understood in the past, when they have other stories of their carrying their ark, they are, it's mentioned that they carried them. So in Deuteronomy, and there's the passages at the bottom, but Deuteronomy 31.9 says, so, God, so Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the Levite priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders, and then it kept going on. But again, it mentions they were carrying the ark. So that was clear that they knew how to carry it. Okay, so... Maybe they were, isn't this a little bit OCD? You know, why do they need to carry this? And the book has some interesting analogies. So he talks about, you know, if you're going to transport radioactive material today, there are a lot of rules and regulations, and you have to be really careful about it. We have rules for that, not to be OCD because radioactive material can be really dangerous. The arc can be really dangerous. If you touch it, you'll die. So giving all these rules for carrying it, was really for their own protection, as well as showing respect for it. So that's one. Um, is it possible they forgot? Like, oh, we just didn't know we were supposed to carry it this way. How would you respond to that? They've done it right all the other Okay, they've done it right before. The Philistines, how did they get it on the cart that they sent it to Israelites? Unclear, and, and the Philistines were the first to carry it in a cart. And you're not supposed to carry it in a cart. So we're told that, but we're not told how it got from wherever it was to the cart, whether the Philistines did it or the Israelites did it. But it had four rings on the side. That's, that's, that's true. We're not told, but we're not told that 
the scripture is silent on what happened with the Philistines. Took it. Although they had a lot of bad things happen to them yeah. when they had the ark. But they didn't give the instructions. That's right. They didn't give the instructions. They weren't given the instructions. Well, if the Philistines can do it, so can we. <laughs> okay. Well, as the judge would say, ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law. Okay. And, and again, they sh it has the four rings. Now, the poles were supposed to be in it all the time. Now, maybe the Philistines had taken them out, but it still had the rings. They, they still knew how this was supposed to be carried. I saw another hand. Yeah. And yeah, they, when they lost it to the Philistines, it's because they took it in battle, almost as an idol, uh, but they carried it yeah. correctly. Yeah. It's only been a few years. Have they forgotten already? That's right. Um, so it had rings on the side. Every time they looked at it, they were reminded that this was something that was supposed to be carried. And again, three months afterwards, they said they did carry it correctly. And again, that's not super surprising. It's like they saw what happens when we don't. But we do have the example that they carried it properly just three months later. Okay. So it also says in First Chronicles that it was clear God was angry because they weren't carrying it properly. So again, if someone could read this for me, volunteer. And David summoned Zadok and Abiathar the priest and Uriel... Messiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab, the Levites. He said to them, You are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in a prescribed way. Okay, and I do want to thank all the readers because some of these have a lot of names that aren't super easy to say. So. Okay, so another aspect of this, the timing was also significant. And again, this is all from the author. So the text repeatedly says that all Israel was present during this. All Israel was present. He said over 30,000 people were watching this parade of them getting the ark back. And so God did not want to send the message, and they all knew how it was supposed to be carried. So it seems like there was also this message that obedience was optional since it was disobedience that led to the loss of the ark originally, as someone already mentioned, and the slaughter of 30,000 Israelites. So again, this was, this was the time to say obedience is important. And again, after this incident, the ark was always carried correctly in several examples of that. Okay, so the bottom line on this reason is they should have known better. They, I would say they did know better. And he told them that anyone who touches the ark would die. Okay, that's not the only reason. Another reason is it was insulting to be carried on a cart. Now, we, we may not, you know, I don't know much about litters or, you know, so when, if I got up riding a cart instead of having to walk, I'd be super thrilled. So, but that's not necessarily the culture that there was back then. So the ark represented the presence of God, like Brian was saying, and therefore it warranted <coughs> extraordinary care and respect. Exodus 25, 22, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant, ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all of my commands for the Israelites. So it's the presence of God is with the ark. And for Samuel, so the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought the ark back Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. So I have a question. Yeah. So 
So the guy who touched the ark and disobeyed God, is he in heaven? <laughs> or because if God strikes you down, can See, you just assume, I, ah, you're a little warmer. <laughs> well, I don't think we can answer that, to be perfectly honest. That is up to God. And then there's the whole topic of heaven and hell. That could be a different class if we want to talk about that. <laughs> but uh, I, I wouldn't want to make a conjecture in that particular case. <clears throat> okay. So, again, this was the presence of God. It should have been treated like royalty, because God was supposed to be their king before David, right? And then they said, we want David, we want Saul. So Solomon, we're told Solomon was carried in the litter. This is in Song of Song, Solomon. Behold is the litter of Solomon. So that, that you know, you've seen the old movies where they have the people carrying the really wealthy rich people. Well, kings were carried in litters. They weren't carried in carts. Um, litters were for rulers, kings, important people. Carts and wagons were for things. So we're given an example of the offerings, tabernacle equipment, grain, talks about them being carried in carts. So carts were for cargo. And so the Philistines were the first reference to people carrying the ark in a cart. So the Philistines did it, like Jeff was saying, well, it's good enough for them, we can do it. Like, obviously not. <clears throat> so placing the cart on a placing the ark on a cart was an insult. They were say, and essentially saying the ark was cargo and not this holy object, the presence of God. Where was the ark put in the tabernacle? Holy of Holies. This was like Super important, and they're treating it like cargo. Okay, reason number three. Israel's lack of respect for the ark was symptomatic of a lack of concern for their relationship with God. So again, it represented the presence of God, but it also represented the covenant relationship between Israel and God. And it's often called the ark of the covenant. So it has a lot of symbolic meaning here as well. So God is usually patient and doesn't punish instantaneously, but occasionally... He does seem to take these drastic actions. So he'd not tolerate disrespect to the object that symbolizes their relationship. Because their relationship was really important to him. You could say he was being patient with them carrying it on. I mean, a lot of disobedience that he overlooked until... Until the blatant touching it. That's right. So you could say he was patient, 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 and then he burned with anger, it says. Okay, so here's sort of the takeaways from the story of Uzzah. God does get angry. We have examples of him getting angry. But he tends to get angry to, when people are clearly violating the commands that he gave or his honor. They're disrespecting him, thinking of him as cargo, if you will, or the relationship with his people. He can get angry when that is being challenged or not respected. Yes? Growing up, I remember hearing this story about why it's important to not be disrespectful in church, why you should dress up, why you, all these things. That was the proof text. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I'm glad I didn't become a Christian till later. <laughs> because that would have been a major hurdle for me, because I don't like to dress up. No, I was, when I was vice president at my school, I wear, wear a tie. And as soon as I stepped down, I said, I will never wear a tie again. Now, if I go to a funeral or something, I'll force a snake of death around my neck. But, and, you know, why? It's not an arbitrary thing on my part to say I don't like ties. Ties are a communist plot. What <laughs> <laughs> is the market in the early 20th century trying to cut off the flow of blood? <laughs> you know, 
Do your history research. <laughs> now, again, there's not a lot of original source text that supports this view, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's true. So no, I'm not a big fan of that. And, and, and again, my view would be we're supposed to show God our respect and honor all the time. So if that's the way to do it, you should wear that all the time, in my opinion. Another comment, yeah. So still I have this feeling of the unfairness for Uzzah because you say, okay, his commands, but then you have the woman caught in adultery in the New Testament and says, hey, whosoever without sin casts the first stone. I mean, she's breaking the commands and this is God's command and this guy broke a command. And it's like, it doesn't seem fair. I wouldn't want to be him. I, well, okay, the one I'm not the woman, but you know, <laughs> I, I like to be in the situation rather in the New Testament than this poor guy. How would you respond to that? Anyone? God shows mercy when he wishes. Okay. But in this particular case with, with others, it, it's not just, I, he, he was sort of the last straw. And again, we talked about there were a lot of other issues going on here. Um, other comments, other responses, yeah. What about God's patient that they lost the thing in the first place? <laughs> okay, God was patient. We don't know that he lost his soul either. We don't know what happened. So we're a, kind of making a, a judgment there. He's bringing, I mean, he hasn't lost that, but he, need, he knows how important it is to teach the children of Israel for the sake of their, the community's um, um, <clears throat> health. Yep. I think it's also important when, because you say, how would I respond to that if someone said that? I would, I would go to my default, which should always be the word, and I would show examples that you know I can show you some other places where God was extremely merciful in situations maybe even more extreme than that. And so, by contrast, I can actually have someone make an opinion or their own decision through that, and not actually say, well, God is God; He can do what He wants, right? Because that's the wrong way to do it. But I can actually show you in the Word tons of other references where God was merciful, where he maybe shouldn't have been or couldn't have been, but he chose to, to act that way. And so in that situation, he chose to act that well, way. Well, that's, that's the God I want. I right. want the mercy. <laughs> right. Don't be honest. But also, there, the implication is there was something going on in his heart. Right. And God, and we don't know what that is. And, and later on, I'll talk about it, but I think we get spoiled. Because the Bible does teach the wages of sin is death. And it talks about in Genesis, if you sin, you will, if you take of the fruit, you will die. And I think we get spoiled because it doesn't happen. As soon as we sin, we don't die. God is patient and loving, but I think God has the right, if he wanted to. And there were a lot of other instances going on here, whereas the story of the woman caught in adultery, Jesus is teaching a different lesson there. And another thing is God and man cannot occupy the same space. Man will die if he sees God. Mm -hmm. We've been told that. God is holy and just and perfect. And, and by Ezra touching it, he came in contact with God. Mm -hmm. And, you know, God doesn't eliminate circumstances. The baby still died, but David was forgiven. So, uh, you know, I have to think that Ezra was forgiven, but he, he still had to suffer the consequences. Yeah, I would agree with that. And. Well, yeah. Two things. Growing up, hearing this story, learning this story, I always felt like, well, it just seems so sad that here's Uzzah walking beside the ark, and all he does is reflex 
to stop it from falling, and then he dies because of his reflex. You know, but I mean, I understand the other parameters, but um, I forgot what my second point was. <laughs> <laughs> that was just something that, that always troubled me, was mm -hmm. that he died because of his reflexes. But like Jeff was saying, I the art. remember now, if he had not died by touching it, even if it was because of reflex, it would have shown other other people would have thought, well, Isa didn't die, so I can touch it, and I won't die either. So that first touch had to have been dealt with, regardless of why. And I think the original command, again, was for their own health and safety. It's like this was a dangerous object, if you will. God is not a tame lion, as it says in Narnia. So I see a, uh, a pattern. Um, if the Old Testament prepares us for Jesus, right, paves the way for Jesus throughout the whole thing, it also paves the way for God's mercy and His discipline. So, so I don't, I don't find it surprising that He's both, because He basically shows us <coughs> that He's merciful, but He also means business when. when and that's actually another thing we'll talk about later today is. There's lots of examples where he's slow to anger and his loving kindness and just counterbalance. So like I said, one of the challenge, one of the elements of this class is people who cherry pick, well, God was angry here. And again, generally when we see God is angry, he had a good reason for being angry. But, but it's not his general characterization of his character if you look at the whole. This is similar to the relationship of, as humans, fathers and sons, or fathers and children, whatever. You know, we hopefully are loving, caring, merciful, forgiving parents. But our kids make us angry sometimes. And we react in ways that we don't really want to. But if we don't discipline them, we're not helping them. Okay, one last comment and then we're going to move on. Yeah, well, God bringing us to Christ, he is, in the Old Testament, has to establish himself as the law. And, and give law that nobody could live up to. You know, that's in preparing us for Christ to forgive us. I think also, if I can say, <laughs> <I'm> still <laughs> and we also have an infinite God and infinite heaven. What does death mean to God? I'm not sure it means a thing to him. When he kills people, did he prepare heaven an infinite time for us? And so I think that it doesn't mean the same thing to him. When we see people die, we think how terrible. And I'm not sure God thinks that way. One last comment, Miss America, Erica. <laughs> um, I just think that if God was angry all the time, then he would not have a relationship with man, which he wanted so desperately. And like I said, we'll get to... <laughs> I, I need my mute button. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, I'm just kidding. We're playing with you, man. <laughs> okay, moving on. Okay, let's talk about when God got did get angry. We have a number of other examples. So this was a sort of a classic example, but there's lots of other examples of God getting. And the Hebrew word for anger literally means nose, or his nose became hot. So that, if you look at the Hebrew word, nose became hot, that's 
God was angry, burned with anger, means his nose was hot. Which is, again, you have to, if you just, I want a literal translation of the Bible. It's like, well, you're going to give me the nose is hot, okay? Which is not, it meant he was angry. And what does slow to anger mean? Or tra- means a long nose. He had a long nose, which means he was slow to anger. So that's what that literally means. The word appears about 10 times in Exodus, and it always refers to Moses or God. Uh, Exodus 14.4, we'll look on the next page. The calling of Moses, we see God got angry with Moses. We're all familiar with that story. Moses got angry with Pharaoh. You know, we have all these, the seven plagues, and Pharaoh was stubborn, and Moses got angry. And the Song of Moses talks about God's anger. Exodus 22, God's response if people take advantage of widows or orphans. It talks about he, he burns with anger. The golden calf, anger. Moses was angry and God was angry in that particular story. And frequently God is described as slow to anger. And we'll talk about this one more. Okay, Exodus 14, 4, 13 through 14. Thank you, Jeff. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. And the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. And he will be glad to see you. Yeah, so I didn't give the whole story because this is objection number four. There were several other ones. You know, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want And then finally it got to this point. And so what can observation? So God was really patient for the first four objections. And then he sort of lost his anger. I mean, then he uh, it says it burned with anger. Um, and why was he angry? Because Moses didn't want to help, and he wanted to bring his people out of slavery, and Moses did not want to help him do that. So he's angry, not only because I think Moses is just being stubborn and disobedient, because he doesn't say, don't you, why don't you want to help your people be free? I think that made him angry. Notice God does not smite anyone in this particular story. It's not like, okay, I'll snuff out Moses and find someone else. You know, So God's not a smiter. And God's angry because he wanted to deliver his people, but Moses wasn't willing to help. So here's an example where he was slow to anger, but he eventually did get angry. And it took him a long time to get angry. Okay, another story from Exodus. Um, Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. So God really is concerned about justice. And, and you don't see this with other gods of the ancient Near East. They weren't particularly, they were concerned about themselves. They weren't really concerned about the widows and orphans. But we, so that's one way the Hebrew scriptures are quite different than the other ones. So God is concerned with justice and eliminating injustice. His wrath, so far, the examples we've seen, his wrath comes from compassion for his people in slavery, the Moses. He wants to free them, widows, orphans. So he gets angry when there is injustice. I think is one of the main takeaways. There's also this pattern we see, and, we, and someone already mentioned this, the Exodus, we see him getting angry with the Israelites all the time. And there seems to be a pattern here. The pattern is he delivers his people. He takes them out, he gives them something. Then they complain. So here's some of the complaints. They said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have we done to us by bringing us to the desert? It's like, he just want to bury us here? Or, so the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? I'm so thirsty. 
That's what I do all the time driving home from church. <laughs> Rachel will confirm that. Uh, 16.3, the Israelites said to them, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. That there we would sat around with pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Yeah, we were a slave. Baba is a good day. Good times. But you brought us out into the desert to starve us. You know, so they complain. So that's the pattern. God delivers them. They complain. God is patient. Then the people promise to obey, but they disobey. First chance they get. And then typically God gets angry with them. That seems to be the pattern that we usually see. You know, they complain and God gives them food. They complain, God gives them water. They complain, God gets angry eventually. Is that the same thing with parents and kids? Well, I was never angry with my parent children, so it's hard for me to evaluate <laughs> comments. Are we there? I gotta go to the bathroom. You just went. Uh, see, I, I can't relate to that particular example, <laughs> but I'm sure there are other people that aren't quite as good oh, parents as me that experience that. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm just... So, what I just did, was that a lie? Because mm. my wife and I have this debate of what, a, what is a lie. And we disagree, and generally Rachel's right. This is another side story. But, for me, a lie is intent to deceive. There was no intention to deceive. This was just a story of untruth. <laughs> so I think stories of untruth and lies are different. And we'll talk about the law later on in this class. <laughs> because it turns out the Hebrews had no word for law. We call it the law, but the, in the Septuagint, it was translated law, but it's Torah, which just means instruction. So I think we bring in some baggage to the law based on that Septuagint translation of the law, and then we bring in Western thoughts of the law, which aren't necessarily consistent with the way it was originally intended. So that's a preview of a few weeks from now. Okay, so we, God is described as being slow to anger, and that was already mentioned, and I think that's a more prevalent view of God, and we see that in multiple genres of Old Testament literature. So we see it in the historical concept, uh, context, Exodus 34, 6, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord... The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So he's describing himself there, giving himself a name. 14.18, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third, fourth generation. So again, we see this image of God, but we also see a holy and just God, which is we talked about the first week, we need to take God the way he reveals himself, and not just the parts that we like, but he is holy, he is just. Again, not fair if you're the children of the third and fourth generation. Well, and what does that mean? I think we have, well, once fifth generation comes around, I can do whatever I want. I mean, I think he's using a, um, yeah, we can talk about that later. Okay. Uh, Nehemiah, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are God, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and do not forsake them. So that is the way God is typically described, abounding in love, slow to anger. So that is the historical context. We also see prophetic context. Joel, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. 
Jonah, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I, went, when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disasters. Like, I really wanted you to destroy them, and I knew if I could preach to them, they would repent, and because you're slow to anger, and you're loving, and I just didn't want that to happen. So, but that's how he's described in the prophets, poetic, because so this is like the Psalms, Psalm 85, 15, but you, Lord, are compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. So again, this is the more often characterization. And I think, well, I think I have another slide later on. So note, slow to anger is part of the name he describes himself with. And names in the Old Testament are much more significant than, my name's Philip. I don't know what that means. It means nothing to me. You know what a Philip is? It means when you take your finger and forehead and you fuck someone's head, that's a Philip. <laughs> Spelled differently than my name. But I don't think that's what, like my, my lot in life is to <laughs> So, but I'm lover of something Philip lover means. Of lover of horses. Philip, but again, we, that's not part of our culture. But that culture, names were significant and important. So being slow to anger, as he describes himself, is very significant, representing his essence and his sort of ultimate being here. One of the proof texts that he had to be slow to anger and merciful is when Aaron said, we just threw the gold in the water and now walk this cow. <laughs> <laughs> and he lived after he said that. <laughs> uh, okay. Also, in addition to being slow to anger, we're told he's abounding in love, could also be translated loving kindness. Hebrew word is has said, and he's, whenever you read love, it's like, okay, what does that mean? We know Greek words for love, right? But there's Hebrew words for love. In this particular Hebrew word, it's the best kind of love, a devoted patient parent to a child, the love of, of a committed spouse to his or her partner over a decade or two decades of marriage, that sort of deep abiding love. Um, and it's not used lightly in the Old Testament. It's not sort of casually, oh, I love you. That's not the love he's talking about when loving kindness. It's usually described the behavior of God. It's used 251 times in the Old Testament. 179 refer to God in terms of loving kindness or abounding in steadfast love. Remember, anger, we only see him angry, specifically angry, 80 times. So this is a much more common representation of him. Uh, not only is God loving, but his hesed is abundant. In the eight other passages that say he's slow to anger, seven mention his hesed. And not only is it abundant, but it's also enduring. The phrase is steadfast love endures forever, occurs 42 times. Now again, 26 of those are in Psalm 136. So that's a good psalm <laughs> in terms of enduring love. But it occurs 42 times altogether. Okay, so that's sort of Old Testament, how God is characterized. We looked at a couple of examples of God getting angry, and there was always a good reason for it. But it's characterized by being slow to anger in general. What about... New Testament examples of Jesus getting angry. What's that? Money changers in the temple is the classic example. And again, it never says he was angry, but it's clear from his actions that he wasn't a happy camper. Okay, so. How long does it take to weave a cord? Okay, how long does it take? That's. A so, I mean, it wasn't a reflex anger. 
but it, it, it even serves there. That You're saying he's not like Indiana Jones walking through Jerusalem? It takes a while, so his was a, and I can't remember the, the word, so I'll paraphrase, but it says that his, his uh, love for the, for the temple was steadfast or something like that. Well, again, so this story appears in all the Gospels. Now, it does appear in different times. It tends to be the end of his life in Mark, Mark Luke. John is near the beginning. But you have to remember, and again, when you, you go back to my class on the lost world of Scripture, you know, these aren't intended to be modern biographies. They wrote these for particular reasons, and they put the stories to make their points. And that would have been perfectly fine in that culture. They're not trying to, this is not a newspaper. Okay, so the fact there are different times in his life doesn't really matter, okay? But it's in all of them, which means it's significant. So the question is, why was he so angry? What made him, what's that? Disrespect. Disrespect, what else? Well, just disrespect, not just of the temple area, but of the Gentiles, because they were in the place where the Gentiles were allowed to come in and worship. That's right, so again, disrespectful of the temple, but also the Gentiles were being deprived of the opportunity to worship, and God got angry because they were being deprived of that right. So I think God gets angry over injustice, over things bad happening to his people. Um, there's another Doomsbury comic strip, so I thought I'd share this one that's related to this particular story. It's hard to see. It says, preachers up front talking, the wrath of God is being revealed in heaven. Again, <laughs> Reverend Sloan, I've been noting something about the readings in church. What's that, Sam? Well, whenever you read from the Old Testament, God is always crabby, snarky to everyone. So this is the perception people have, obviously, from this commentary. But the New Testament is about, isn't about anger at all. It's about love. God's only son is totally pacifist. He wouldn't harm a flea. He's just humble dude. He's mellow to everyone, even the Romans. Not saying this is a correct characterization of God of the Old Testament or Jesus, but this is a perception. It's only really snapped once, right? With whom, honey? Well, the money changers, Mom. Oh, right. What is it without money changers? They do seem to set people off, don't they? <laughs> and again, the reason I like this is it has this common misperception. Jesus is loving and people never get angry except this one time. And God is angry all the time in the Old Testament. It's just not true. Over here and then over here. Yeah. So, maybe I take this out of context, but in Revelation, Judah says, I discipline and rebuke those whom I love. So be earnest and repent. Jesus talks about heaven, I mean, talks about hell a lot more than you read in the Old Testament. And judgment and other aspects, which are not pacifists. He's, he's giving us the, uh, the guidelines. Yeah. He, he's making it very plain. Like, yes, I love you. Yes, I'm patient with you. But there is a consequence for your action. Right. Over here. Oh, I was just going to say, everybody thinks that's the only time. But I went to a children's ministry conference, and they were talking about a translation of um, the Jesus... Uh, gets angry with the crowd for pulling the kids away from him. He has this, that word that's used as his anger in that scripture is the same word. Used Interesting. In I, so they were angry that they were keeping the children away. I didn't yeah. find that so, one. So he talked about being a, I don't know. A, I'd have to look at that one. 
the, the one example I did find where it specifically uses the word anger, because the temple doesn't use the word anger, was the healing of the man with the withered hand in Mark. It says, he looked around at them in anger. So he's angry at the Pharisees um, and deeply distressed their stubborn hearts, and then he healed the man. So he's angry with them, and it specifically says anger. I have to look at that other one to see if it has the same word or it's translated something different so that I missed it. Um, so Jesus got mad at the Pharisees. He's angry at their lack of compassion. I'm trying to heal this person, and you're concerned about things that aren't as important. Okay, so here's some final sort of takeaways here. Both Testaments teach that death is the punishment of sin. We saw that in Genesis. We see that in Romans 6.23, which says the wages of sin is death. So the death of Uzzah, we didn't talk about Ananias and Sapphira, but that's a great New Testament example where they lied and they were struck dead. Now, it doesn't say God struck them dead. It said they fell dead. There's a strong implication that it was God, I would say, but it doesn't specifically say God got angry with them and struck them dead, but it shouldn't shock us because the punishment wages of sin is death. Um, so why do these instances tend to shock us? I think it's like you were saying. It's like it doesn't happen all the time, so when it does, it seems unfair. So the vast majority of the time when people sin, no one dies instantly. So when someone does, but why did it happen this time? That seems unfair. You need to be consistent, which I'm super glad he's not consistent because none of us would be here right now. Uh, more people don't die instantly because God is gracious and slow to anger. And severe punishment should remind us that death is the natural, natural consequence of sin. Instead of making us think God is mean or angry, we should be thankful for God's mercy and patience and being slow to anger. To me, that's the more natural conclusion than God is fickle. I, I would... I tend to agree with the first one, but I see it differently. I think when folks, uh, I think we see this question a lot from non-believers. Yeah. Where's God? Why is God doing this? But they never gave God credit for the good at the beginning. And so those that look at God and realize his long-suffering, realize his faith and his mercy and all that, they understand when the bad happens, why. They, they've been, been, he's been patient with us, but I think we, uh, a great example in the other story is if you go a little bit further, David, they, they stop, they do it right, they yep. figure out who's supposed to be carrying it, what order. Three months later, they, they did it right. Six steps, no one dies, and we party, and we celebrate, we worship. And that is counting your blessings, that's what's with his holiness. And when you don't do that, then you get questions like, well, why did he have to die? Why, why did he take her? Because no one took accounting of his goodness. Yeah. He told us at the beginning, the beginning. And, and I think that's a great point. I think it's a great point, Craig. Maybe I'm going to advise you if you read that story, it sounds really strong. But if you keep reading, which most of us don't, and read the next part of the story, when their son, I think it's their son, made a mistake, they're given mercy. It's because God realized they were grieving. Yep. We challenge them. One more. <laughs> As if that means anything to this group. <laughs> As a long time non believer, I think it seems unfair because we don't want to change because we're selfish. And 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 people will say that God is selfish because he makes us do all these things, but how is how is selfishness offering you eternity? And, and you can't, for the, the short time we're on this earth, we can't do what he asks us to do. So 
And that's why it seems unfair to people is because they think, well, well, why should that happen to me? Right? So it's all about us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Are we not judging God? Yeah. And what did Jesus say about the way we judge others? He will use the same standard to judge us. I don't want to judge God. Well, and again, I said God is God. I can do whatever He wants. It's true, and I'm not God, so it's I, I don't have any basis at all to judge His motives or what He says. I don't have the knowledge, the information, anything. I don't think it's judging. I think it's just trying to understand it. What we're doing today? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And we take God's grace for mercy. Yes, I'm ignoring the hands now. <laughs> so now I hesitated asking this next question, and this is in the book, which is why I'm including it. But it is related to the last class. Based on the story of God's anger, when is it ever appropriate for us to get angry? So this goes back to the unoffendable class. And so, like I said, I don't want to turn this into unoffendable part two. But are there things, is this applicable to us at all? I hear yes. Why? How? As a teacher of young children, when um, people hurt them, and I mean mentally and physically. Mm -hmm. It may be anything. Okay. Other comments? So <clears throat> I think the short answer is yes, but you also need to be prepared. If you're going to show that attribute of God, then you need to be prepared to show all the other attributes as well. And in the same contextual amount that he shows them being slow to anger twice as often as he is to get increased. And again, I, for me, the main takeaway from the Appendable book is absolutely correct. There's nothing about holding on to rage and being an angry person and having that sort of quality and character to you. Absolutely. People get angry over silly little things and they hold on to that anger. I haven't spoken to my brother for X many years because he told me I was fat or whatever. You know, People get angry and they hold on to that and that's clearly not a biblical concept. But I do think we're created in the image of God. And because of that, I think we can be loving. I think we have a sense of right and wrong. We can be creative. We have all these elements. We're a poor reflection of him, but we're created in his image. And part of that image is he has this sense of right and wrong. And I think he got angry over injustice. So if there's a three-year-old that is raped, I think anger is the natural response. Now, it doesn't mean I go kill that person, but I think... And again, that, how do I then process that and deal with that? But I think anger is the appropriate. I, I would almost be concerned if it's like, nah, I'm okay with that. I mean, we're all sinners. It's like, ah, no, I get angry over injustice like that. So for me, I think the only context for anger would be God got angry over injustice. He got angry over insulting who he was. I don't think we have that right. But don't think we what? have that right. If someone says, Phil, you're fat, I don't think... <laughs> that gives me the right to be angry. And now I may feel anger, but I need to let it go right away. Because I do think anger is an emotion. So it can't necessarily control that. I think as we grow in the church, some things that used to anger me may not anger me anymore. I think that's true. But I think injustice is one that probably should continue to anger us. So is it right or wrong to get angry if people disrespect God? It, it depends what you mean by getting angry. If you're, well, right. And what you do with it, yeah. So right. the initial feeling of anger may be perfectly appropriate. Holding on to that and holding a grudge, and I don't think so. 
<laughs> like a good southern person. Okay, so bottom line, we are out of time. We have one minute left. Is that, yeah, God got angry. Yes, God got angry in the Old Testament. We have a lot of examples of God getting angry. But it was always for legitimate reasons. It was over evil, it was over disobedience, it was over injustice, oppression. It was over his people being unfaithful to him. God did get angry, but he's generally characterized by loving kindness, abounding in love, merciful. Those are the more common representations. So next week, we will talk about, is God sexist or affirming? And you have to be careful with the word affirming because, again, we're not saying the modern definition of affirming. If I'm affirming, I approve of your lifestyle. That's not what we're talking about in this context. Any final comments, questions? Okay, we're out of time. I did want to mention there is a good Bible project has a lot of really good videos. So this is a good six-minute videos on God and being angry. I'd encourage you to do a Google search for that if you want to. Now, if you want a copy of my slides, like I said, just give me your email, and I'm happy to send them to you. Okay? So appreciate everyone coming. We'll see you all next week if you come back. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.